I'm Peggy No Stevens, and you are listening to the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky Podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornett. It's August, so that means it must be time to think about the Kentucky Derby. Only in 2020 could that statement make any kind of sense. But it's likely you won't be going to the Derby because very few of us can this year. It's the perfect time to have a Derby party at home. Today's guest has written the book on Derby parties. Peggy No Stevens has co-written a new book with Susan Riegler called Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? And there is an entire chapter on Derby Parties. Peggy No Stevens is a bourbon tourism pioneer who helped come up with the very idea for the wildly popular Kentucky Bourbon Trail and implement it. She has also been an advocate for women in bourbon and is founder of the group Bourbon Women. In fact, The virtual 2020 Bourbon Women Sip Summer Series begins this week on August 20th. You can register for free at Eventbrite, and you can find a link in show notes. Peggy and I discuss her new book, the impact of the pandemic on the bourbon industry, what she thinks the future holds for Kentucky bourbon tourism, and she gives us a few tips for our own derby parties. Plus, Peggy shares the story of welcoming the legendary Julia Child to Kentucky, and teaching her about Kentucky's native spirit, as well as how she introduced celebrity chef Bobby Flay to bourbon. Also, Peggy discusses the strides women have made in bourbon and the next doors that need to be opened. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Eat Kentucky podcast and to leave a five-star rating. Also, you can help support Eat Kentucky by visiting patreon.com slash eatkentucky. Now join me as I talk with a master taster, Peggy No Stevens. Peggy No Stevens, welcome to Eat Kentucky. Well, thank you for having me. I was looking forward to this. Well, I appreciate you being on. We uh, we are still in the midst of sort of semi-COVID lockdowns, I guess, and uh, we had we tried uh, to get together, but uh, decided for now it's a little safer to do things virtually. But I. And looking forward to getting a chance to talk to you today. Well, I was too, whether it was in person or over the phone or, you know, it's it's good just to connect. I agree. How, how have you been surviving the past few months? Well, you know, I think I've been in the camp with many people when it was first announced there was a shutdown. Uh, I think everybody thought, oh, okay, we'll shut down for a couple of weeks and it's kind of temporary. And then I think as things moved toward end of May, early June, people were like, oh, this might be here to stay for a little bit. So, you know, you kind of get your priorities in order and what you need to work on and, you know, how you're going to kind of protect yourself and your company. Uh, and then it was really a, a nice light, if you will, when the restaurants started to open again, even though it wasn't maybe 100% capacity, it was hopeful. Uh, And then the bars. So it's been a little bit of a seesaw, I think, for many people. 
who are trying to juggle work, home, school, etc. But at the same time, I have to tell you, we are going to be resilient. And I feel that, um, you know, around the corner that we are hopeful. And especially with some of the vaccine uh, articles that I've been reading and um, tests that they're doing. And I really think that's the ultimate uh, settlement, if you will. You know, when people know that there is some some hope out there for inoculation. Right. And I, uh, I've followed some of that myself and hope that that... Uh hope that that turns out to, to work out sooner rather than later. They're giving us some hopeful signs. So we'll knock on wood and cross our fingers and uh, hope, hope that that comes, uh, that comes soon. You have a, uh, a lot of background, and we'll talk more about that a little later, but a lot of background with bourbon tourism in Kentucky. And how do you see the distilleries handling this situation? And, and do you think that they're going to be able to bounce back uh, as far as the tourism aspect goes? Well, you know, there's so many answers, honestly, to that question, but here's what I'm proud of. I think that our Kentucky distilleries have been so nimble and quick to action. Uh, Just at the very fact that when there was the shutdown, they immediately moved into making hand sanitizer, many distilleries did, and, you know, to help the greater cause, which I was extremely impressed by that. Uh, then, you know, as there were preparations to reopen, you know, many have reopened on a reduced, you know, number of tours and some might do tastings, might not do tastings, but they were so prepared uh, and it was so well thought out because they do deal with the public and, you know, safety precautions, uh, sanitizing, uh, masks, et cetera. And so I think they have been incredibly nimble. Um, as they have tried to manage, as everyone has, you know, on the best way to truly reopen. Uh, do I think that it's going to be 100% anytime soon, that they'll be full tilt and boogie like they were before? <laughs> uh, not quite yet. But at the same time, if I know our distilleries, they are planners and they will plan for the future always. Uh, the demand in spirits has certainly not declined. Uh, so there is still that bourbon market, bourbon sales, you know, on-premise, of course, is uh, down because of restaurant closures, et cetera. But at the same time, uh, I definitely think that there is a spirit to Kentucky, no pun intended. And when the time comes and the day comes that we can fully reopen, we will bounce back. Are you concerned uh, for any of the, the newer or, I guess, craft brew or distilleries that we have? I am, um, because some of them are family-owned, and many craft distilleries, this is not just in Kentucky, it's across the nation, rely on their backyard, you know, for sales. They do not distribute possibly outside of Kentucky, but here's the good news that could save them if we keep moving in the direction of legislation allowing to ship uh, product. That means that people who may have visited you know, a particular distillery fell in love with the product even last year would be able to purchase it online. So I really think shipping sales uh, are going to just so save so many of the um, craft distillers that are out there today. Uh, and, and that's my greatest hope for them. Well, we've seen certainly some loosening of that already uh, in in Kentucky. And it seems like with the current situation that the that the push would be for more uh, that that would it would open it up that that 
kind of that log jam that has been there for so long may be finally be released. Well, and you know, when you think of legislative issues regarding uh, spirit sales, you know, these laws date back hundreds of years almost, you know. Right. Um, and so, frankly, we're, we're pretty archaic um, when it comes to what we can or can't do. But I know that the Kentucky Distillers Association works incredibly hard and has made monumental uh, progress, in my opinion, not only just what you can sell per person at each distillery, but the shipping regulations and laws. So right now, as it stands, you know, there is still more paperwork and the alcoholic beverage control, you know, procedures, license, et cetera, that need to be worked out. But we're headed in the right direction and no better time than now. Uh, to head in that direction, as well as restaurants. Um, some are able to do some open container or cocktail to go, I should say. Uh, that's never been able to be done before uh, shutdown. Right. We're seeing a lot of changes uh, that started really pretty quickly, that things that people had wanted for a long time that were always held up, but then suddenly because of the lockdown and the restrictions, they they got they were opened up. And uh, hopefully we'll see uh, those things continue and that there won't be a, a pullback on those kinds of uh, relaxations. Well, I certainly hope so, because if this has taught us anything about why we need spirits, I mean, it's one of our number one exports. It's one of our in Kentucky. And, um, you know, we make 95 percent of the world's bourbon. Um, so I think that that's reason enough, in my opinion, uh, we have a very thirsty world, and I think that people want to be part of us, not only with our spirits, but our culture. Um, and I think that it's a very important economic initiative. Right. I think that uh, if there's one thing that, that we don't need to do, it's place economic burdens on state industries coming out of this, coming out of a lockdown because so many people have been hit so hard. Well, I agree. And, you know, uh, spirits in Kentucky, it's one of the highest luxury taxed items. And, you know, there's only so much someone can invest in as a distillery owner, you know, and paying taxes and going through shutdown and, you know, pulling back on sales. And so we need to help um, our distilleries stay up. No, I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I want to talk a little bit about your book. So you've got a you have a new book that you co-wrote with Susan Riegler called "Which Fork Do I Use with My Bourbon?" That's an intriguing title. Well, thank you. And you know, we're so excited about uh, launching this book. It actually launched back in April, and we were doing it just in time for Derby. But we all know that Derby <laughs> <laughs> moved a little date, but it did not deter us one bit. Uh, in fact, what's so special about the book that was kind of a hidden gem is it's an entertaining book. It's how to entertain right. in your own home with bourbon. It's about you don't have to be an expert in order to conduct a tasting in your home with your friends and family. So, you know, who else would write an entertaining book during isolation, right? So, <laughs> Absolutely. So, it, it, but the happy, the happy stance of it was that people were purchasing the book to read about it and learn about it so that when everything comes back online, that they're ready, you know, to have parties again in their home. Uh, and even today, you know, as we can entertain at least, you know, 10 people, let's say in our home, you know, people are having friends over because, you know, we have to socialize. It's human nature to socialize. It is human nature to enjoy each other's company. 
Uh, and so I, I'm just so thrilled the way it's been received. And Susan and I are very proud to have uh, produced the book. And you mentioned the title, uh, Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? Uh, it's really a play on etiquette because so many people ask, as Susan and I have traveled around, you know, conducting tastings around the world, well, what's the proper way to do this? And what's the right way to do that? And what's so beautiful about our industry is that we're very approachable and friendly. So we don't have rules per se. All we have are tips and techniques. And so that's why we did the play, which fork do I use with my bourbon? Because it's any fork you want. Right. And it, I will say this is, this is really a beautiful book. I mean, it's, it's coffee table worthy. It's the sort of thing that you, that you not won't just read, but you'll, you'll flip through too, because the, the photography is just beautiful. And there's so many ideas that you get from, from the presentations that you all have. Well, thank you for saying that. We worked really hard to make the book not only educational um, and approachable, but also very visual. Because when you entertain, you know, we want it to be able to show how we set up a tasting. We wanted to be able to show how we set up a food pairing. And, you know, in order to do that, um, we want it to be able to just display it in a way that someone could mimic in their own home. So what, what led you down the path to write this book? What inspired you all to do this one? Well, as I have um, said many times, I think this book has been in my head you know, for at least probably 12 years, you know, since I started my company, you know, my main background, I started in the hospitality industry, but worked uh, the rest of my career in, in spirits and bourbon and entertaining and hospitality and visitor centers. And it was this great culmination of everything I was trained on, um, you know, how I greeted the public, how I threw parties in my own home. And I was always asked, you know, how do I do this? Can you show me how to do this? And so I think that I've had this in my head for quite some time. It's just, you know, partnering with my dear friend, Susan, we're both whiskey reviewers for American Whiskey Magazine. Uh, we've been on the Bourbon Women Association board together. We just have a really great respect for each other's um, expertise. And so, you know, I, of course, let everything get in the way of writing. So I said, hey, if you come on and we co-author, we can really get this done and put all of our ideas in. And she's so organized and has written so many uh, bourbon books that she wanted to do it with me. And, um, and here we have it. You know, it was kind of a labor of love. Well, you did a great job with it. I, I will say, when I first got it, I was really amazed at how advanced it is. And I don't mean that in a way to put people off, but just this is not a, it's not a superficial book at all. It, I, it, it has a lot of things that I think would probably take somebody years of going back to it and, and drawing from it to, to really master well, thanks for saying that. Um, that's exactly what we wanted. We wanted someone who, you know, may be loving to entertaining in their home, but they don't know too much about bourbon. So we've provided kind of that basic training, if you will. But then there are so many people, as you know, uh, especially Kentuckians who um, are very loyal, you know, to our culture and our spirit, and they want the next step in learning. So that's why we did chapters like advanced food pairings and, you know, uh, basic food pairings to advanced food pairings uh, because they needed kind of a breakdown of how they could learn along the way and have fun with it. 
Obviously, we want to encourage people to buy your book, but let, let me ask you for a couple of tips, maybe if somebody who's wanting to get started on, on this path, where what would be something that they could implement? Well, I think the first thing um, in being a good host or hostess is knowing your theme of your party uh, and letting your guests know what you're going to provide at that party. So we've all been to, you know, different events in our life that it doesn't say whether it's a sit down dinner or a reception or just cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. So you're not sure whether to eat before you come. Uh, you're not sure whether you should, you know, bring a bottle along with you or if there's an open bar. So I always encourage the host or hostess to say what it is, you know, let your guests know what to expect. And then when you bring them into your own home, uh, the first thing I would do in conducting a bourbon tasting is to select three different styles that you truly love. Because when you talk about a product that you enjoy yourself, it will come across to your guests as well and they will enjoy it even better. So that's why we gave quite a few tips on how to taste, um, tips on how to set the table for your bourbon tasting, when to pour it before people come, how to nose it, uh, you know, what does a finish mean, so that you sound very knowledgeable when your guests arrive. We've all been invited to events, and especially events at people's homes, and we, we really have no idea what we're getting into. So I think that that's an excellent idea. And you've, you've even got examples, uh, just to tell people how, how in-depth this is, you've got examples of invitation cards of what an invitation ought to look like, even the information it should contain and some ideas on how to graphically present it. Well, thank you for saying that. That actually comes from, I'm actually a certified etiquette uh, consultant and protocol expert. And so that really just comes from putting the who, the what, the when, the where together on an invitation. Because uh, again, people do like to know what to expect. And then once you're in your home, uh, you can have some kind of experiential surprises for them, you know, in, in your own style. And I think that's the crux of it all, is that even though Susan and I really have tried to, you know, interweave all of these different ideas and creative aspects, it all boils down to your style and how you want your home to look and how you want to entertain. And that's, that's what's so great about um, the flexibility of the book. I want to come back to some of that a little bit later, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own background, just for, for listeners who may not be as familiar with you and how you got to where you are now. You, uh, you have some, some family bourbon connections, uh, I believe. And so were you, were you interested in that growing up? Was that something that you uh, thought you wanted to pursue or was it just kind of background noise? Well, actually that side of the no family um, definitely got into whiskey. Uh, my side of the family being from Louisville, it was never really um, a thought for me to get into mm -hmm. the spirits industry. It happened almost by accident. Uh, I, I, I started, uh, graduated from University of Kentucky with a PR degree and communications. And so my first job out of college was working in the hotel industry. And that was in catering and convention services. So uh, little did I know how much training I was going to receive, not only on culinary arts, but also on spirits and wines and how to pair, you know, wines with food and, you know, doing large events. And it was a few years later that I was actually headhunted 
by a spirits company, Brown Foreman Corporation. And when I took that job, I led the uh, first kind of meeting planning, event planning department and travel department. And so I did, I guess, executed almost 100 events a year uh, with that and traveled around. And that truly uh, was another layer, you know, to my career. Uh, Then uh, the wonderful Woodford Reserve Distillery opened and they said, well, actually it was pre-opening. And they said, hey, would you like to be the um, director of guest services with all your knowledge, all your background? And I said, of course. And that's where I became and trained uh, to be a master taster as well, which has carried me all my life. You know, you really were on the ground floor and a lot of a lot of your work kind of built the ground floor of of bourbon tourism in Kentucky, because there really wasn't bourbon tourism as we as we sort of take for granted now when you were starting in all of that. Well, you know, you are so correct because I distinctly remember doing a presentation and I bet it was in the uh, mid mid to late nineties, maybe. Um, And what had happened is I was a director at Woodford in 1994, uh, I think is when I started. And then there were two other women, they were competitors. One worked for Jim Beam, one worked for Maker's Mark, but they had the same role as I had. And we became friends. We traveled to tourism conferences together. We enjoyed each other's company. We would go to each other's distilleries and we were all in the same boat. We all needed tourists. And so we actually talked about, hey, why don't we just cross market? Uh, You know, if somebody comes to Woodford, then we can send them to Jim Beam or let them know about uh, Maker's Mark. And so we said, you know, with the distilleries that we have, and I think there were like seven or nine distilleries in Kentucky at that time. Now we have, oh my gosh. Oh, it's so many. Right. Um, So we went and approached the president at that time. Uh, Ed O'Daniel, uh, the KDA president, Kentucky Distiller Association, and we said, hey, we've got an idea. You know, c- could you all create a brochure that, you know, lists all the different distilleries that people can travel to, and we can put them at the welcome centers in Kentucky and, you know, hand them out at our distilleries, and that way everybody knows about everybody, and we can all, rising tide, you know, kind of raise all ships. And that was it. That was the start of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Did you have any idea that it would end up to be what it is now? Uh, no. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it was a great idea because when isn't it a great idea to work together? I mean, it just, we're all sure. going after the same tourist, um, you know, when, and I look at this wholly as a tourist endeavor. Um, you know, we're all going after the same tourist. We all want to promote um, the economic value of our brands uh, to the world. So what a great thing to do to come together and and work together. And that's kind of the camaraderie, I think, that we have always found in our industry among master distillers and, you know, salespeople, et cetera. We're competitors, but we support each other. It's a community. So to see the growth today, and I really have to give so much credit to Eric Gregory, who's the current president of the Kentucky Distillers Association, because when he came on board, he just took it to an entirely uh, whole nother level of exposure and promotion and put marketing dollars behind it. And what I was so thrilled about is when I started my company um, in 2008, the Kentucky Distillers Association was one of my first clients. And what they asked me to do was to come back and write a five-year strategy 
uh, for the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. You know, where are we going? How are we growing? You know, how do we do this? And that I did. And so, you know, I was able to participate yet again in taking it to the next level. Now, if you look at the impact that that, that, that decision back in the 90s ha- has had, not just for the distilleries themselves, but for the Kentucky tourism economy, hotels, restaurants, uh, tour companies. I mean, it's really uh, al- almost impossible to calculate uh, the, the waves of benefit that it's had for the state. It's been an explosion. It, it's been something almost like we had this wonderful hidden gem that we weren't sharing enough. And once we exposed that gem, the rest of the world wanted to be part of it. And that is so special. And that's why we have to treasure um, what we do, you know, every day in our distilling world, because it is, it is a way that the world has recognized Kentucky. Well, let me ask you to put on your, um, your forecasting goggles uh, then. And, and where, where do you think we will see bourbon tourism and, and tourism associated with that five years from now or 10 years from now? Yeah, I think once we're over the hurdle of what we're into today, there'll continue to be capital and infrastructure investment among the distilleries. So what does that mean exactly? That means expansion to take on more tours, uh, more experiences. I do think um, this very small endeavor right now of some of the distilleries serving cocktails and small places that you can eat, I think that will grow uh, to make it a truly whole surround sound destination. And I think you're going to start seeing some overnight accommodations at distilleries. Uh, that's, That's where I think we're headed for sure. So it's just going to be more, uh, uh, I guess, a, a broader, more all-encompassing type experience. And we're certainly seeing, you know, different distilleries opening restaurants and that sort of thing. I do. And I also think that some of the craft brands that have become wildly popular, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of acquisitions happen in the next, you know, five to 10 years, uh, just because they've been very successful and sometimes larger companies can come in and purchase those and acquire them because they have greater distribution and channels of, of funding. Uh, so I think there'll be some of that as well. Do you think that will be more brands that already exist? Um, I don't know, like a Suntory uh, that already have a presence? Or do you think it will be companies that are trying to get their foot in the door that have sort of, uh, that have missed out so thus far and are trying to hop in? I think both. I I, I do. I think both. I I still think they're, uh, for the, in other words, the craft distilleries that have not come online yet in Kentucky, I think there's still so many dreamers out there that want to start their own distillery um, or make an investment with friends and start a brand so I do think there'll be new craft brands coming on board. I think there will be, you know, larger companies buying some of those craft brands eventually. You know, it's kind of like the American dream, uh, you know, to start your own business. And so I think that will definitely happen. One of the great ways to eat Kentucky is to live in Kentucky. 
I can help you with that. I'm a realtor in the Lexington, Kentucky area with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. If you're looking to buy or sell a home, please contact me at alancornett at kw.com or eatkentucky at gmail.com. Now let's talk more about Kentucky, its food, and its culture. I am talking to Peggy No Stevens, who is co-author of the new book, Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? And it is a guide to hosting tastings and parties and uh, lots of detail in it. I wanted to ask you about a, a couple of events. One, one I saw you reference in the book, which was your uh, opportunity to give Julia Child a tour. And that you know, this is a this is a food uh, uh, podcast, and so Julia Child sends up the antenna, <laughs> and I was very curious about about that and what that was like. I have to tell you, that was absolutely one of my fondest memories um, in the culinary world, for sure. Uh, what happened was I was part of an organization. It was a national organization founded by Julia Child. It was the American Institute of Wine and Food. And they decided that they wanted to start a Kentucky chapter. Uh, so I joined the organization and sat on their board and then later became president. And we were going to have kind of an inaugural event. Um, and we thought no greater thing we could do than to bring the grand dame, uh, you know, of culinary here to Kentucky. And so we put together an event at a distillery that, oh gosh, I've, I bet we had well over 150 people attend that um, was just truly amazing uh, because she came in and, you know, of course I'm intimidated. I think I was in my thirties at that point, but intimidated because she wanted me to conduct a bourbon tasting for her. And I thought, what in the world could I possibly teach this woman uh, that I admire so greatly and is so valued, you know, in the culinary world. And do you know, she was one of the most gracious people. She was in her 80s at the time and sat with me and was so attentive, almost like a schoolgirl. She was so curious and asked all these questions and, you know, acted as if, you know, that I really was in charge and teaching her. And so she just made me feel so comfortable doing it that we had a wonderful time. And then we had, um, you know, dinner afterwards with one of the greatest chefs I've ever worked with, Chef David Larson. Uh, if you're from Kentucky, you probably have heard his name. Uh, he fixed her fried chicken and, you know, just salsa fee casserole and, you know, just all these wonderful Kentucky dishes. And she just adored it. Um, I also have to say that that was all the time. And I put this in the book, actually, that I was asking her about food pairings of, of bourbon and, you know, what would she pair food-wise, um, you know, for cocktails, et cetera. And she said, well, my favorite thing to, to have while I'm, um, you know, cocktailing with whiskey is goldfish crackers. <laughs> and I almost fell out of my chair because I was ready for Chateaubriand over a crostini with, you know, Burgund, you know burgundy sauce. And, I mean, I was just expecting this big, long French uh, explanation. And she said goldfish crackers. And that's when I just you know, she was my idol. What could I say? Ever. Right. And well, and you know, you talk about being intimidated, who wouldn't be intimidated by, by just the prospect of, of dealing with Julia Child, especially cooking for her. I can't even imagine the pressure oh my <laughs> that would be. Oh, I know David worked on that menu, um, you know, for weeks and changed it. 
I don't know how many times, but then it was interesting because even he as a chef realized, you know, keep it simple, you know, show our uh, ingredients of Kentucky, show, showcase our culture. And that is when he came up with the menu and, and it was a home run. Right. I think that's, that's always important to keep in mind uh, as, as we talk about the distilleries and Kentucky tourism. And that is that what people want when they come to Kentucky is that they want Kentucky. They, they don't want something else. Exactly. And we, exactly. uh, we, we have to be pr- proud of, of what we do and what we have. And that's going, that's going to draw people and that's going to impress people. Well, exactly. And that's why it's, it's funny sometimes to me on a tourism basis, you know, how some restaurants or distilleries will try to go all too fancy for tourists and uh, fancy's great. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, they're coming here because of our reputation of great down-home cooking. And so sometimes the simplest things are truly appreciated. Absolutely. And I think, I think where we see things most successful uh, in all of that are chefs who uh, who are taking Kentucky ingredients and Kentucky dishes and they are elevating those things uh, in a way that they might not have had before, but they're still giving them something that is unique to this place. And I think that that's what people want. I, I agree. I agree. So, you also, I saw reference uh, as I was poking around uh, doing some research before I talked to you that you you introduced Chef Bobby Flay to bourbon. So tell me tell me about that encounter. Well, this was many many years ago when no one really knew what the Food Network was, believe it or not. And I was touring him. I got we got a call from their production company, and they said we need somebody to tour us you know, at a distillery. And so, of course, I said yes and uh, took him around. He had never drank bourbon before. He had never experienced a distillery before. And um, it was almost comical because I took him, you know, all the way around on the production side of things from the grains we use to fermentation and cooking the grains and, you know, distillation process. And there's a point at at, um, uh, the, the stills that, you know, we have what we call new spirit. It's the clear spirit off the still prior to going into the barrel. But at the same time, you know, we nose it and we taste it because we want freshness and, you know, it can be very aromatic and um, flavorful. So that was the first time that he kind of took a sip of that. And granted, we were shooting extremely early in the morning. So you know, I'm sure he didn't have breakfast, et cetera, but he was like, oh my God, you know, is the whole day going to be like this? So then, um, you know, we were able to give him, you know, the real finished product of bourbon and he fell in love with it. Uh, so much so that we even did a, he did a second show uh, a couple years later about bourbon. Um, he got into going to Keeneland racetrack, uh, loved as I remember, I think he even owned a horse or so. Uh, down the road. So I just feel that he fell in love with our lifestyle. Yeah, there there were various Bobby Flay sightings a few years ago when there was a hot rumor mill, mill that he was going to open, open a restaurant in Kentucky. Hopefully he may still do that. That would be uh, be intriguing. Oh, I would love it. It'd be great. 
So here we are in the summer. It's been pretty hot, but we're looking forward to the Derby, which is kind of crazy. And... It is. In fact, it's funny because I grow mint on my patio. Mm-hmm. I do too. <laughs> any, good, any good Kentuckian knows, you know, mint's invasive, right? But yes. at the same time, it was absolutely stunning in May. I mean, May, it just peaks, in my opinion, uh, May and June. And so by the time August hits, it gets a little leggy, I like to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my husband and I, we kind of cut it all down because, you know, it, it'll come back. You know, oh, yes. it comes back a little fresh. So I'm like, did we time this right that we cut it all down? It was just this past weekend that we cut it all down that we'll have some mint by the time Derby happens because I'm going to do it all over again. I hope every Kentuckian, regardless if you were not at Churchill Downs, that you were on your back patio the day of Derby at least having a mint julep. Right. And I wanted to talk to you some about that because you do have an entire chapter in the book on hosting derby parties. And so it seemed uh, seemed relevant here in the heat of summer for us to talk about that here in, in the crazy year of 2020. That's right. And we have a whole chapter um, in the book um, and it's it's really outlines everything from, you know, do you want to entertain casually? Do you, you know, and bring out all your stoneware and things and platters and, you know, or do you want to, you know, entertain more formal with, you know, silver platters, et cetera. But, um, what we are finding is that people are going to do small gatherings uh, in their homes, you know, during Derby. I know right now, anyway, uh, they're expecting attendance, you know, at Churchill Downs. But I do think that we're going to see a huge influx of just smaller in-home parties for people to take advantage of. Um, and so I would absolutely still fix. And that's why we it's not a cookbook, but we put so many recipes in the book of our personal favorites um, during that time uh, that you can kind of indulge on those and fix them for your friends and family. Right. That's something that I did want to mention that, that it's not a, a cookbook per se, but you've collected recipes from, from some different chefs, but also some of your own personal uh, recipes uh, from both of you that it's really a nice edited group of recipes I think that that people can approach and are 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 well aimed at at really doable items for a for a gathering. I do too. Um I, I think that the the thing about all food in my opinion during Derby, it has to have staying power. Uh because you know the Derby there's races all day. People like to graze like the horses. Uh, you know, so you set it all out and it'll, it'll be out for a few hours, you know, some of the food. So, uh, that was what we tried to keep in mind too, is, you know, food that can last all day and still taste great. So what are some easy, relatively easy, maybe I'll say upgrades for people's derby parties that they're, they might be getting ready for? Well, I mean, there's always kind of a traditional, you know, fried chicken, country ham, you know, some of what I call kind of the picnic favorites, right? But if you wanted to upgrade from that, I would absolutely turn to sliced beef tenderloin, which there's a recipe in the book for. It was my my mother-in-law's recipe, which I adore and use every year. Uh, But like, you know, beef tenderloin sandwiches uh, just sliced very nicely is a beautiful, beautiful array. Uh, And then, of course, no one ever could forget whether you know, it's casual or formal, you know, your, your traditional Kentucky Derby pie. 
that that's a must, you know, on the table. Absolutely, in my opinion. And then, you know, some of the other fair um, side dishes like corn pudding uh, can be dressed up, uh, which I love to have corn pudding alongside that beef tenderloin and fresh asparagus. You know, so the good news is that whether you want to dial up or dial down, you know, the buffet, you can do so easily because there's so many versatile foods that are truly traditional here. Well, I definitely want to encourage people to get the book, and there's still time with quick Amazon delivery that people can have it brought safely to their home if they uh, if they put in an order for it. And and of course, there's a lot. It's 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 a lot more than just Derby party tips. It's it's really comprehensive and expansive. Well, and that was purposeful. We even you know have a chapter on how distilleries entertain. We took a few of the distilleries mm-hmm. that we have experienced and. Um, talked, they, they shared some of their secrets on, you know, how they entertain guests, some of their cocktail recipes. Uh, so it's just, it's just jam packed with ideas. I think that's, that's what truly makes this book fun. Right. And, and as I mentioned before, it's not just the text that's inspirational, but you have so many great pictures in it that illustrate ways that you can, you, one of the things you say that you probably got already more in your house by way of hospitality pieces than you think you do, that you can use those and, and, uh, and elevate a party. Absolutely. You know, I'm a firm believer, um, you know, when you, when you have your house, you know, you don't necessarily have to run out and buy all these new things uh, to decorate a buffet table or decorate, you know, a dinner table or a cocktail table. Uh, sometimes if you just walk around your house and think of the color scheme you want to use. Think of the theme you're trying to create. You might have a vase on the table in your living room that's, oh my gosh, that'd be perfect. And I'm just going to cut some flowers and put in it. Uh, there's just so many props, if you will, around your own home that once you start to collect it and organize it, you'll be surprised. This is CJ Lotes of Garden and Gun, and you're listening to the Eat Kentucky podcast. I wanted to shift gears just a little bit here because I know uh, one of your, and this kind of goes back to to what you were talking about back in the 90s when you were really starting bourbon tourism. Uh, You have been very involved in promoting women in the bourbon industry. Are you encouraged with the strides that women are making in distilling and in the industry as a whole? I would say that I am absolutely encouraged. you know, from the point that I became a master bourbon taster, you know, way back in the 90s, um, I'm very encouraged that we have more female master distillers, female master blenders, uh, female production. I'm very encouraged that we have more females in the ranks of brand management. Um, I I still think we have a ton of work to do on the C-suite and executive level for women, Mm -hmm. but I am seeing Uh, Some of that start to shift, which is also uh, very favorable, in my opinion. Uh, The only other area that I would love to see more work being done is, you know, how we market our brands, you know, not using women, uh, you know, like Playboy bunnies and, you know, scantily dressed women to showcase a product. That I think we have a ton of work left to do. Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, in the in the past, bourbon has largely been marketed to men, and that you're you're cutting off half of your 
potential buyers there. And I think uh, I think that's an important shift to make. Yeah, and I think that's where Bourbon Women Association, the founding of that organization almost 10 years ago, was so needed because there needed to be a voice of women because they're the other half of the population. And, you know, probably seven times out of 10, they're out shopping and grocery shopping and gathering, you know, for the party that's going to happen and deciding the menu. And they have a lot of buying power. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so to shift over to have a conversation with those women, uh, as we have done with the Bourbon Women Association, and to hold events and to educate and teach them on different products as well. There's no greater marketing that a brand could do. Oh, sure. So tell me a little bit about the organization with people who might be interested in it. Sure. Um, Bourbon Women Association was founded back in, I think, 2011. um, And it was because I saw a need Basically, it was not part of my company. It was just my passion. Uh, but I saw a need for the industry to do what I had mentioned, you know, start a conversation and what I call debunk the myths of how women drink. Because I, I was seeing more and more products being created to entice women that were sweeter, lower proof, fruity. Um, and when a woman likes her bourbon, she, we've done studies and, and all types of um, blind tastings that we actually found that women like higher proof, more robust and spicier whiskeys. And so that's the kind of information that we're conveying, you know, to the industry. If you want to market to women, you know, here's how you do it. And it's not about the age of a woman. It's about the psychographics of, of a bourbon woman. And so once we really could wrap our head around um, those types of, uh, you know, insights, if you will, you know, then we started to create events for the women and it just snowballed. We've done well over 200 events uh, across the nation and uh, many, many cities that we're in. And we have formal branches of bourbon women um, as well. So it's just taken off. And the credit is due to our industry supporting us. That is and, that if, because if they didn't support it, if they didn't believe in us, we would have never been able to accomplish what we have. And I'll link to some information about that in show notes so folks can uh, can access that. So I wanted to I wanted to give you here my occasional challenge that I'll throw out it's at my bourbon oriented guests. So your bourbon challenge is you get $100 and you have to go into a well-stocked store, but you you can only choose things that are readily available. So no, uh, you know, no old Rip Van Winkle or anything. And you've got to come out with three bottles. So you've got $100, you go into the store, what do you come out with? Gosh, I would probably, uh, if I only had $100, I would definitely buy Elijah Craig. I would definitely buy Old Forester 86. And with any money I had left over, I would buy Baker's, uh, which is made by Jim Beam, Mm -hmm. uh, with the rest of the money. And by then, I think you've got a little bit of change for a pack of gum. (laughs) <laughs> so, so you would you would go for the the 86 old forester over the 100 
for me personally, uh, just because I enjoy that with cocktails. So I usually don't like a hundred proof in a cocktail. Gotcha. I like I like a hundred proof over the rocks. So if you're if you're one of those people who you know would rather just have it over the rocks, then you can buy the hundred proof. You might not get your pack of gum. That's right. You may, you may, or you may have to reach in the other pocket and see if you go a couple other dollars. But. <laughs> well, I don't think anybody can fault you for your answer on that. So good. Uh, well, I appreciate you being with me today. The book is Which Fork Do I Use with My Bourbon? And it's written by Peggy No Stevens and Susan Riegler. And it uh, is from a, a sub a sub imprint of UK or University Press of Kentucky. Um, and they, they've done a beautiful, absolutely beautiful job with this book. So congratulations on the publication. I appreciate you being on today. Thank you. It's been great fun writing the book and it's been great fun being with you. I look forward to, uh, to us being let out again. Maybe we can, uh, we can have, uh, an event together sometime. We can always hope. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. You can find links to Peggy's website and social media in show notes, as well as a registration link for the Kentucky Women's Sip Summer Series. Please hit the subscribe button to the eKentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes, and please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. Also, please tell a friend who might enjoy the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love for you to visit the new Eat Kentucky Patreon at patreon.com slash eatkentucky, where you can support the podcast and receive bonuses and previews. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at eatkentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I am a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornick.